0: Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in Genesis 20. going to be reading the whole passage. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Now, Chuck's not here so you don't get a day off. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do come to your scriptures and ask for your help. Would you teach us from this portion of your scripture, a complicated passage where we see sin and brokenness, but also where we see your grace, where we see your kindness in Abraham's life and in the life of the world? ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in this portion of your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've watched or read the books in the Harry Potter series, you're probably familiar with a large, ornate mirror called the Mirror of Erised. Harry finds this mirror locked away in storage in a dark corridor of the castle, and when he looks into it, he begins to see strange people, faces people of people that he's never met, but who seem oddly familiar to him. And the closer he looks, he begins to see eyes that are like his. He sees noses that are shaped like his own, and even an old man who has knobbly knees that match his. And for the first time in his life, he's seeing his family, And he comes to this mirror to see his family again and again. One evening, he's surprised by Professor Dumbledore, who asks him, do you know what's happening? Do you know what it does? Harry says, it shows us what we want. And only as Professor Dumbledore can do, he says, yes and no. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest most desperate desires of our hearts. See, friends, it exposed Harry. And when we come to Abraham's life, we're looking into a mirror of sorts. But sometimes we come to Abraham's story and we think that we're going to find a a mighty hero with superhuman faith who left his pagan land and his pagan father, went on a long journey to the land of Canaan, trusted God and was willing even to sacrifice his son by faith. But then sometimes we come to passages like this one, and we're tempted to be disgusted by his lack of faith and the subsequent sins that accompany his lack of faith. But rather than the extremes of perfect faith and non-faith, what we see in the mirror is a man just like you and me, a man whose faith is joined to his failures. Abraham's not some far off figure. He's not some far off figure that we can applaud as a superhero. He's also not a far off figure that we can disdain because of his sin. But we are to see ourselves in him. When we, when we read these portions of scripture, we are to see ourselves as if we were looking into a mirror. Abraham is a man whose faith is mixed with his failures. And when we study his life, we're looking into a mirror that exposes us, that reveals our deepest, most desperate desires, but unlike the mirror of Arised, this mirror shows us a path forward, a path walking with God through the ups and downs of the life of faith. So when we look in the mirror of Abraham's life, what do we see in Genesis 20? We're going to see three things. First is a pattern of besetting sin. Second is the protection of God's promises. And then we're going to see the provision of God's blessings. So first we see the pattern of besetting sin. Notice in that verse 1, Abraham leaves the sanctuary at the oak of Mamre. That's where he had been. It was at the end of chapter 13 that we see Abraham settles in Mamre. And what does he do there? He builds an altar. He builds an altar to the Lord so that he can worship at the foot of this oak of Mamre. This becomes his home base, a personal sanctuary of sorts in which he interacts with the living God. So chapter 21, or excuse me, chapter 20 begins on an ominous note. This is negative. That Abraham is restless. It says, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. So he left his sanctuary. But these terms, journeyed and sojourned, also harken back to a similar episode in chapter 12, when Abraham journeyed in the Negev and went down and sojourned in Egypt. That's not good. It wasn't good then, and it's not good now. An identical episode occurred there with Pharaoh, but this time he doesn't quite go as far as Egypt, but he goes to the southernmost edge of the promised land. He pushes the boundary as far as he can go without breaking it. He was beginning to compromise. And it's that compromise, that discontentedness with the promises of God, with the status quo as it was that leads Abraham in verse 2 to his besetting sin. He lies. He lies about his wife's identity and he passes her off as his sister just as he had done with Pharaoh in Egypt. Then, when confronted by Abimelech in verse 9, he begins to make excuses for himself. Right? He begins to justify his actions. He blames the culture of Gerar. He says that there's no fear of God in this place. That's why he did it. Well, he blamed the culture. So it's the culture's fault that he is the way he is. But then he blames his family. Well, she is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not my mother. a little bit like South Georgia. I can say that because I'm from Georgia. Sorry, sorry. So he blames his family. It's his family's fault. Then he blames God. Well, when God caused me to wander, I said to her, This is the pattern of besetting sin compromise, restlessness that leads to sinful action, that then leads to justification self-justification blame shifting it's a pattern that now repeats itself in abraham's life and isn't that what we do too rather than taking responsibility for our actions we blame the culture the culture made me do it this is what i was raised in i just breathed the air or it was my family I am this way because my father was this way or I am this way because of these things that happened in my home. And yes, those things may be true. Those things do happen. But this is still a pattern of besetting sin, excusing ourselves, trying to justify our sinful actions and behavior just like our father Abraham now, back in chapter 12, we're tempted to give him a bit of a pass, right? It's, it's totally messed up, but we kind of get it. There's a famine in the land, so he goes to Egypt. That makes economic sense. He is fiscally responsible. But he's a foreigner in Egypt. His wife is beautiful, and his life is on the line. And frankly, he's kind of new to this whole God thing, right? He He had been a pagan worshiper, a polytheistic pagan worshiper in Ur. So he left his father's house. He goes and follows God. He's a God-fearer now. But he didn't have a whole lot of time with God yet. So we kind of get it. We think it's horrendous, but we understand. But now we're a couple decades past that. Abraham's walked with God for a while now. And we're tempted to sit in judgment on Abraham. We're tempted to say, how dare he do this again? How dare him? What a wretched husband he must have been. How can Sarah deal with this man any longer? Deal with such disgrace. But before we sit in judgment, let me ask you this. How many of us are struggling with the same sins we did when we became Christians? or praise the Lord for those of you who've grown up in the church and never known a day apart from Jesus, how many of us are struggling with the same sins we did 10, 20, 30 years ago? Anger, you still blow up at your kids 15 years later or 20 years into marriage you're having the same argument. You're still fighting the same way. Gossip, you still talk about people behind their backs like we're in middle school. Lust, you still have those inappropriate thoughts. Greed, you have stuff, but you want more. Criticism, you still find something wrong with everyone around you. And if you can't think of one, it's probably (laughs) self-righteousness. So before we judge Abraham, before we judge anyone, let's take a long look in the mirror of Abraham's life and see the ways we continue to be plagued by the same sins. And when you blend all that up, when you blend all those besetting sins of all the people in the church, it gets complicated really, really quickly. And it can take a hard turn south. And it has done that. There are places it really has taken a hard turn south. There's a whole social movement called evangelical. Have you all heard that term? It's those who have left the church. They are deconstructing their faith, deconverting. And often it's claimed that it's an intellectual deconversion, struggles with creation and time and evolution and the presence of God. But when you listen to the stories, you hear people's struggle with reconciling sinful Christians with a sinless Christ. And we can have the same struggle when we come to this story. It's happened again. Abraham's done it again. It was Gandhi who said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christianity. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And to that I'd say yes and amen. We are so unlike our Christ. But Jesus did not give up on Abraham, even though he struggled with his besetting sins. And he does not give up on you. And praise the Lord, he doesn't give up on me either. So we see a pattern of besetting sin in Abraham here, but we also see it in ourselves. And then secondly, we we see the protection of God's promises. At the beginning of chapter 12, God promised to give Abraham a land and a people and to make his name great so that he would be a blessing to the entire world. But central to to those promises is the promise of a son, in chapters 15 and 17, with whom God would make an everlasting covenant. And on the threshold of the birth of that son in the very next chapter, that promise, the whole plan of redemption through a son is put in jeopardy by Abraham himself. He allows his wife, the matriarch, to be brought into the household of another man. But who steps in? Who intervenes? God. God steps in to protect his plan and his people. It says that God came to to Abimelech and he said, Behold, you are a dead man. What? Excuse me? I'm a dead man? That's not what you want to hear from God, especially not in a dream. And Abimelech's like, Well, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? He said she was his sister. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. I'm innocent. And God says, yes. Yes, you are innocent. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. I did not let you come close to her. It's likely that that God had afflicted Abimelech with some sort of illness, which would also explain why he didn't approach Sarah. Because let's be honest, kings didn't delay their approach. They did not delay their personal satisfaction. But for some reason, he does. Whether it's illness or some sort of affliction, we're told that God says to Abimelech in the dream, I did not let you touch her. I did not let you touch her. Because of his promise to Abraham, God acted behind the scenes to protect his covenant partners, to preserve his plan of redemption Through a son, and that son was not going to be compromised, even though Abraham may have been. Even though Abraham's faith was compromised, God was not going to compromise the son. Though Abraham didn't ask for it, God intervened and he became a refuge. He became a protection and a help in his trouble, even though Abraham made the trouble himself. One author put it this way, there's no doubt that salvation depends on the faithful Lord, not on unfaithful humans. And That's exceedingly good news. Exceedingly good news for all of us who are in need of God's protection because of our besetting sins, whatever sins those may be. God promises in your baptism to be God to you, to be God to you and to your children after you, and he makes good on that promise. Your salvation doesn't depend on you getting it right all the time. It depends on God who protects you because of all the promises he makes to you in his son Jesus because they are yes and they are amen in Jesus. They are yes and amen in him. You are secure in God because of God's faithfulness in Jesus. We're told in Romans 8 that there's nothing that can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. He says... Paul says, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when your besetting sins plague you, and the evil one comes accusing you, telling you that you deserve death and hell, and taunting you because of your failures, you can say, With Luther, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus, he's the Son of God. Friends, though your your faith is mingled with your failures, it's God who protects you. It's God who preserves you because of the promises that he makes to you in Jesus. So we see the pattern of besetting sin. But we also see the protecting hand of God, protecting us because of his promises to us in Jesus. And then lastly, we see the provision of God's blessings. Chapter 20 uh, ends in a way we wouldn't naturally anticipate when we read stories. Uh, right, we're expecting Abraham to uh, to be in trouble, but at some point along the way, we've kind of begun to expect something else out of God. We've learned to expect differently. It ends with God's prodigal generosity, a profound kindness to Abraham. Look with me at verses 14 through uh, through 18. Oxen, male servants, and female servants—we're not told how many, but we're to expect that it was a large sum. Uh, and and if that weren't enough, if it weren't enough just to give him things, we're told that he says to him, "My land is your land. Dwell wherever y- you want. Look out at the land. If it pleases you, live there." Now, this is an exceedingly generous offer from a king who had been uh, cursed because of Abraham's sins. But he goes a step further. And Abimelech gives Abraham and Sarah a thousand pieces of silver. Right? If if land wasn't enough, if things wasn't enough, he's like, I'm going to give you a a thousand pieces of silver. That would have taken a laborer at least four lifetimes to sum up. Four lifetimes, and this king gives it to Abraham. This pagan king, under God's providential guidance, gives to God's chosen servant all that God has appointed in that moment. That is prodigal generosity, that is a profound kindness. And he does the same to you and me. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve God's kindness, but he's a prodigally generous God, offering the abundance of his wealth to his children. But there's another episode of God's provision occurring later in the next chapter, at the end of Genesis 21, verses 22 through 24, we see a treaty being struck by Abraham and Abimelech over the rights to a well. That Abraham dug. Apparently, some of Abimelech's uh, men, unbeknownst to Abimelech, had stolen a well that Abraham had dug. And Abraham wants it back. And through an exchange of goods and promises, Abraham receives the rights to the well. And he became the de facto owner of the land that was surrounding that well. So now Abraham owns a plot of land. In the plot of land that was promised to him. More evidence of God's promises coming true, particularly of land, through the provision of his blessings to Abraham. Did Abraham deserve it? Absolutely not. Was God kind? Absolutely. But the unique thing about this interaction is that Abraham relates to Abimelech as an equal, he's not a servant. He doesn't relate to him as a sojourner anymore. Something's happened to Abraham. Something's changed about him. He's no longer afraid for his life. And he becomes a man of his word. Remember earlier we said his besetting sin was lying. He's now become a man of his word. The word to swear is used four times in Genesis 21, 22 to 34, But its root word is used nine times in that passage, counteracting the deception that was Abraham's in Genesis 20 and 12. He's changed. But what changed? What happened to Abraham or for Abraham? What had God done? What happened? that he's no longer controlled by that besetting sin of fear and lying. Earlier in chapter 21, in between these two passages, God's promise to give Abraham a son by Sarah is fulfilled. We'll see that in a few weeks. We'll talk about it. Isaac is born, his son, the son of promise. He can look at his son. He's able to snuggle him. He's able to touch him. He's able to carry him. This little boy that he had been waiting for all of his life was in his presence. He could hear him cry and laugh and be convinced of God's protection and his provision because of his son. And it's to a greater son. To God's Son, Jesus, that you can look to be convinced of God's protection and God's provision for you. And it's through that Son, through the protection of Jesus' promises and the, through the provision of Jesus' blessings that you no longer have to be ruled. You no longer have to be ruled by those besetting sins because God is merciful and gracious. As we heard earlier, He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love in His Jesus' You don't have to white-knuckle it anymore. You don't have to do more and try harder. You don't have to keep calm and carry on. You simply look to that son. You look to Jesus, to God-made flesh, and you trust. Because God's ultimate protection and his ultimate provision is his son. It is Jesus. He is the protection He is the protector, and he is the provision and the provider. And if that weren't enough, God promises to give you a land along with him. Not a plot of land in the Middle East, but the whole world. The entirety of the world, when Jesus returns, you and I will inherit with him. God says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things praise the lord so when your besitting sins plague you like a thorn in your flesh trust that it's god who powerfully protects you and it is god who brought prodigally provides for you in his son jesus let's pray Father, your generosity is astonishing to us. When we see ourselves as we truly are, with all of our faults, with all of our failures, with all of our sin and transgression and guilt, it's astonishing that you would even think about us, that we would even come into your mind. But you are gracious and merciful. You are kind to those you have made. And we ask by your grace, teach us to trust. Would you change us, cause us to no longer be burdened by besetting sins? Would you teach us to believe, help us in our unbelief? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.